podcast pod pod podcast 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 pod 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 podcast 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 pod 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 look i don't know none of these songs have words except ave maria and that one's like a prayer i don't want to i don't want to do that go with the most well-known you think Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it. it maybe it's the podcaster's apprentice. There now. you go. There you maybe go. Maybe he. Maybe he enchants a magic boom. <laughs> I. I don't know. Let's just start the show. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it. Or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello. How are you doing today, Mom? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Isaac? I am doing all right. We have a very interesting thing to talk about. Yes, we do. I'm excited. As I was saying before we recorded, when we were watching this movie, I was like, I don't know if we have a full episode here because this movie has no plot. And then I was reading up about it and I was like, oh, this is going to have to be a three hour episode to deal with all the history behind this strange artifact. And what is the movie this week? The movie this week is the third film in Disney's golden era. It is 1940s Fantasia, directed by... Get ready. (laughs) Samuel Armstrong, James Algar, Bill Roberts, Paul Satterfield, Ben Sharpstein, David D. Hand, Hamilton Luska, Jim Handley, Ford Beebe, T. Hee, Norman Ferguson, and Wilfred Jackson. That is a lot of people. Yeah, well, mostly I think you had like one or two people directing each segment. I think so. That makes sense. This is, of course, and I guess the best way to describe it is an anthology film where each segment is a visual interpretation of a piece of classical music. I'm pretty sure it was originally called, like, the concert film or something like that, so... The concert feature. Yes. I tend to think of it more like that than an anthology film. Sure. That's... uh, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a concert documentary... But it's not. I know. It's very unique is what it is. It is unlike anything else. It's Fantasia. Uh, But before we get into how and why this happened, Mom, what does this movie mean to you? Fantasia's always been one of my favorites, even though I don't love every single segment of it. Um, The movie as a whole has always been one of my favorites and some of the segments I really love. Um, I do also occasionally use the movie when I want to take a nap, which, you know, may not sound like what you would use your favorite movie for, but it kind of works with Fantasia. (laughs) For sure. I mean, one weird, like, side note about this movie, uh, you know, in a a world of 100,000 side notes, is that uh, the 1969 release was super popular among teenagers and college students who used it as a psychedelic experience. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it is an experience. And, you know, first of all, I totally get how you could both love this movie and find it easy to fall asleep to. Yeah, yeah. There there are movies that, uh, that are like that. And 
I don't think it's an inherently bad thing. I, I tend to think of it as like a hangover movie. <laughs> but whatever the circumstance, when you need a movie that's like, it's slow, it's quiet, I can drift off and come back and I can still follow the er plot. <laughs> yeah. I did get to see this movie when I was younger. Um, probably would have been a teenager. It came out in theaters in 1990 for the 50th anniversary. I'm not 100% certain I went and saw that. I might have, but the fact that I have no specific memory of it and neither does anyone else in my family kind of says to me we may not have done it. Or if we did, it didn't make an impression. So (laughs) I know, though, that we had the VHS after that. Right. That came out in 91 we had that VHS and that is actually what I'm more familiar with than the DVD edition from 2000 that we own now. Yeah. A lot of different releases of this movie. Um, for me, I don't, uh, we definitely owned this movie because you loved it and I, you love it still. (laughs) And I definitely watched it as a child. I didn't remember it too well. I haven't really watched it. Like let's say high school and later. So I didn't remember it super well until, uh, of course, we watched it together for this podcast, as we do. But in watching it, it was still like, I remember a lot of these segments. <laughs> and, of course, I remembered The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah. And I remembered Night on Bald Mountain. Uh-huh. And uh, I couldn't remember what the last song was, but I remembered it's the one that puts you to sleep. <laughs> it's so true. And I don't um, mean it puts mom to sleep. I mean it puts everybody to sleep. I I was falling asleep watching it this time. <laughs> yeah, you probably haven't seen this movie without it being paired with Fantasia 2000. And that one might be one you remember more when we get to it. That's very possible. Because I thought I remembered Leonard Maltin being in, like, when I think of Fantasia and, like, the introductions, I think of Leonard Maltin And I was like, why do I associate him so strongly with Fantasia? There's no way he could be (laughs) the the announcer for Fantasia from 1940. Right. Um, And it's because he's in Fantasia 2000, I found out. Yeah. And you would be most familiar with Sorcerer's Apprentice because that segment is in both movies. So whichever one you watch, you're seeing it. Right. Well, it's also the most famous one, I think. Very true. So this movie didn't mean a lot to me. Um, personally, other than like, you know, I know it exists. Uh, and I, I still don't know that it's, it's one of my favorites, but, uh, I really liked it. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, again, it is truly unlike anything else. It is fascinating. It's, yeah. And while we're talking about this movie being fascinating, and while we're talking about The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Uh that's where it all started. Okay. This actually gets its genesis in 1936 pre-Snow White. Mm -hmm. Walt Disney thinks Mickey Mouse needs a boost in popularity. They're still making shorts, of course, but they've had to slow down while doing Snow White. Yeah. Maybe the shorts, you know, people are starting to feel like it's a little old hat. He wanted to do something different with the character. Uh Uh-huh. And his idea was what he called a deluxe cartoon short, (laughs) a longer cartoon, based on the Sorcerer's Apprentice poem and set to the orchestral piece by Paul Ducasse that was inspired by the original tale. Uh-huh. Did I say that right? Oh, uh, it says it's French. Like, it's French pronunciation. Oh, it is. It's Ducasse. Ha. Huh. I'm like, I, I don't up. know. Okay. 
so delete all of that. <laughs> now, of course, Disney had already done a whole series of cartoons that were set to classical music. That was the Silly Symphonies. Yes, of course. But he didn't want to do slapstick. He wanted it to be fantasy action. <laughs> he got the rights to use the music in July 1937, and he starts looking for the conductor. Uh-huh. He wants to use a well-known conductor to record the music for added prestige. Ooh, prestige. I mean, the idea for this is already weird. <laughs> he wants to make a prestige Mickey Mouse fantasy action cartoon <laughs> yeah unrelated he happens to run into leopold stakowski who is like as much as classical music has a rock star at this time he is that rock star yeah he was the conductor of the philadelphia orchestra of course as he's in this movie he'd worked with several other orchestras before then he conducted for a lot of Hollywood films, and he was noted for a freehand conducting style. <laughs> he didn't use the traditional baton, uh-huh. and he like conducted with extra energy, <laughs> and people said this was reflected in a characteristically sumptuous sound from the orchestras he directed. <laughs> That's really funny. I can't... I can picture different, like, conducting styles, but... I can't really see how a different conducting style would lead to a different sound. But maybe he just had particular sounds that he told them he wanted and they did it. Anyway, that's that's from my experience as a musician. Like, how does conducting it with a hand or a baton make the sound different? He also, he is a fascinating guy. As the name, you know, Leopold Stokowski. He was a Polish immigrant and people did not love that. In 1940. Yeah. There was sort of a birther myth around <laughs> him. So here's the thing. He becomes popular for this signature style. Right, right. But most of the like old guard of classical music didn't like him. Of course they didn't. He was different. Exactly. Number one, Polish immigrant. Number two, conducting without a baton. What, what, what? <laughs> you have to keep that separation between yourself and the orchestra. And number three... He was really working hard against the segregation of symphony orchestras that excluded women and minorities. Oh. And not only that, but he like was known for supporting contemporary composers uh-huh. and, you know, contemporary music. Like he wasn't a snob. He was like, I conduct <laughs> classical music. I love classical music. But like modern composers are great too and it's awesome and we should elevate those voices and that of course makes a classical music old guard go what <laughs> yeah music died of consumption in 1642 and everything after that is sucks <laughs> so then there's this like birther myth around him people claiming that like oh he's not actually a polish immigrant his name isn't leopold stakowski it's actually leonard stokes okay which i guess i don't know was an own and there was there was like this idea that basically he was a charlatan and a crook and people just basically tried to slander him yeah but he he is a really cool dude he had an absolutely fascinating life Uh uh-huh leopold stakowski r.i.p Great guy. Great conductor. Uh, so Disney runs into Stokowski at a restaurant in Hollywood, and he's talking about this short he's so excited about. And Stokowski was so excited by the idea, 
He offered to conduct the piece at no cost. Wow, for free. And Disney was like, oh, that's fun. Um, and then and then you know they're i like not spending money (laughs) well here's the thing then their little dinner day ends and disney kind of forgets about it then one of disney's new york representatives runs into stakowski on a train and stakowski recognizes this person apparently and is like no i'm really serious i want to do the music so bad i will do it for free (laughs) and he apparently also pitched this guy on ideas for instrumental coloring Wow. Like, he was like, this is my idea for if you were going to animate music in the way you're describing, this is how I would do it. <laughs> Again, Stakowski rules. He just does. Very into it. Good to have people who are passionate about your passion projects. Exactly. This gets Disney, in his own words, all steamed up. He <laughs> is thrilled. He's like, this this guy gets it. This is amazing. So he puts together a story outline. They kind of figure out the basics of the short. Stakowski is allowed to select and employ his own orchestra. He picks out 85 Hollywood musicians. They do a recording session that begins at midnight on January 9th, 1938, and lasts for three hours. <laughs> Weird. Wonder why they started in the middle of the night. I That I can't possibly tell you. <laughs> now they have this recording. They start working on the short. It begins getting more and more expensive. As it does. (laughs) Yeah, in case you have not picked up on the theme of this podcast, that's what Disney's passion projects do. Right. When it starts costing $125,000, Roy, Disney, Walt's brother and business partner, steps in and is like, this is never going to make money on its own. Yeah. No short, especially the weirdest short you've ever come up with, will make $125,000. Let's make it a whole movie. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I like this. This quote is so good. Ben Sharpstein, a production supervisor on Fantasia, noted that its budget was three to four times greater than the usual Silly Symphony. Uh-huh. But Disney saw this trouble in the form of an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> everybody's like you're running the studio into bankruptcy and he's like i have an idea (laughs) let's spend more money yeah gotta spend money to make money right (laughs) so 1938 they commit to doing a complete feature film and they extend stakowski's contract and they also bring on composer and music critic Deems Taylor, who was known at this time for providing intermission commentary during broadcasts of the New York Philharmonic, and they bring him on as the person who will introduce each uh, musical number, each segment. Ah, so he would speak like on the radio between pieces or something? Yes, they would do broadcasts Uh of the New York Philharmonic and he would do basically what he does here, where he'd be like, this is the song you're about to hear. This is its brief history. Yep. And that actually makes sense of why he also does, this is what you're going to see, because that is more the sort of thing you might do on the radio, where obviously there wouldn't be something to see, but you would say... First, you're going to hear the part that tells this story, and then the part that tells that story, and then the other story. And that's actually what they do on classical radio stations. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I like his voice. So, Stakowski, Taylor, several department heads, and the two writers who are credited with the story of this movie, Joe Grant and Dick 
Hoomer, I think is how you say that. Mm -hmm. They meet and they have this very long series of meetings where they try to figure out which pieces to pick Uh and what the visuals of those pieces are going to be. Yeah. They obviously discuss a lot of different things. They eventually <laughs> yeah. settle on what's in the movie. Disney himself is not involved in this because he is also working on Pinocchio, Bambi, multiple shorts, and building a new studio in Burbank. You <laughs> lunatic. <laughs> He's a busy guy. Bambi, again, all of this is happening during the production of Bambi. Which is not even next week's episode. It's the week after next. We're two weeks <laughs> or two years away from the release of Bambi. Yep. So Disney's not actually involved in these meetings, but I think it's interesting that Deems Taylor is not only the introducer of each segment, he's uh-huh. not just this radio broadcaster, but because he was this composer and music critic and, you know, very sharp guy, he actually helps define what the movie's going to look like. So they settle on the final eight songs across seven segments. They get to work. Over a thousand artist technicians worked on Fantasia. There's more than 500 characters. (laughs) Like every Disney animated film of this time, this, you know, this was a ton of work. Yep. But actually less so than some. That was kind of the idea of making this concert film, which is still called the concert feature at this time, was we have this centerpiece, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah. We don't want to spend the money to make an actual full movie around it, so let's do these abstract animations. (laughs) It's still an insane amount of work, and it ends up costing $2.28 million because Disney can't stop and won't stop. (laughs) And they took a segment out, too. Like, there was going to be one more finished segment in there, but it was too long. Right. And the idea was that, well, at least one of the ideas that was had, like, they start talking about this thing, not just as a movie, but as it is introduced in the film, a new form of entertainment. Yep. And the idea was that they would swap out different segments and this thing would play forever in theaters yeah and you could just add and remove segments as it went on and you never knew which ones you were gonna see when you went to see it yep it's an interesting idea it's an awesome idea i don't know if you could do that in actual movie theaters but like imagine if that was something at the parks yeah yeah they changed the set i mean that's kind of what they do with star tours yeah that's what they do with that now but yeah you could definitely have that be something you could do in the park now. There are a lot of ideas that were before their time for this movie. I gotta say that. Absolutely. Maybe before any time. (laughs) Because that's, you know, a lot of people talk about this as being the weirdest Disney movie. And sometimes it's in a kind of, um, I I think a kind of almost disrespectful way where it's like, this thing's so weird. Yeah. It, It is arguably the weirdest Disney movie, but weird here means ambitious and interesting and literally trying to redefine what a film can be. Right. But it is true that Disney of the 2000s would never make something like this. Never make (laughs) something even close to this. Are you kidding? Yeah. The only reason they would make something like Fantasia now is if they're making Fantasia 3. (laughs) I think, though, aren't they making some Fantasia thing for Disney Plus now? 
this is not for this segment probably we need to do this later <laughs> there, but there is another segment for that but yeah. i mean yes they are and that's all we know about it is they're making something fantasia related for disney plus like there's literally nothing else to talk about <laughs> um okay but i mean even that's telling right like right. fantasia is not a theatrical release it's a we're dumping that on disney plus yeah. Speaking of the theatrical release, Disney doesn't just reinvent the narrative of what a movie is here. He invents something called Fantasound. You heard of this? I might have. The Disney brothers wanted to make a system, and I assume this is mostly Walt. <laughs> they wanted to make a system that would create the illusion of an actual symphony orchestra. Uh-huh. Um, and they also recorded it in a way that film music was not recorded at this time it was recorded on multiple physical sound machines because that's how you had different audio channels in 1940 <laughs> you had different recording machines yeah yeah um but so they recorded like all the instruments separately they had eight different channels plus a ninth channel that was just a click track that animators would use to time drawings to music uh-huh they used 483 thousand feet of film to record just the audio <laughs> so they would basically be able to get like a surround sound thing going on right right they're they're trying to invent even almost better surround sound than we have now they also and so they wanted to in addition to this they wanted to build a new system to play the music uh-huh they pitched this to David Sarnoff of the Radio Corporation of America, and he was like, can you build us this machine? And Sarnoff backed out due to financial reasons. He's like, absolutely not. <laughs> this will cost $200,000 at the time, which is about $4 million now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, coming out of a depression, going into a war. Right. Bad timing. And the Disneys were like, we'll pay that. And he's like, no, you won't. And they were like, no, we'll pay that. So here's another great quote. Though it was not exactly known how to achieve their goal, engineers at Disney and RCA investigated many ideas and tests made with various equipment setups. <laughs> they wanted to do something that nobody knew how to do. Like, that didn't exist. I they mean, have to work from first principles. That's kind of how they're doing a lot of stuff, though. I mean... We, they had to invent a whole bunch of processes just to do, like, Snow White. And each one of their movies invents a new process, practically. Exactly. And this movie doesn't invent any new animation processes because they're trying to do the animation as cheaply as Walt will allow. Right. But it does invent this new... And so they call it Fantasound. But it's basically, like you say, it's stereophonic surround sound. And it invents multi-track recording... <laughs> overdubbing, and noise reduction. Fascinating. This podcast and techniques that I use to edit this podcast do not exist without Fantasia. Yay! You can read more about the development of Fantasound. It is, again, this, this crazy thing. They invent brand new machinery. They have to bring on parts from Hewlett Packard. It's it's crazy. <laughs> they also have to like make a bunch of different audio to test this new machinery, of course. Right. So it is estimated that between individual takes of the music, prints, and remakes, three million feet of sound film was used to make this movie. <laughs> My goodness. A fifth of the budget 
was just spent buying that film, recording music on it, and, and making the copies of it of everything. Just just the recording <laughs> techniques. A fifth of the budget. Wow. So talking about the actual theatrical release, RKO Pictures, a, a very famous, no longer extant film studio, kind of known for, for being a risk taker, and which had an agreement to exclusively distribute all of Disney's movies, yeah. which, you know, is in of itself kind of a risk, was like <laughs> absolutely not with this one. Yeah. They didn't like that it was two hours and five minutes long, plus intermission. Which is very long for a general release at this time. Certainly, I mean, the longest animated film released in America to date. Yep. Also, did not want to have to pay to install Fantasound in theaters. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem right there. And also, of course, just the nature of the movie itself. Like, how do we sell this, Disney? Like, people <laughs> want you to make princess movies. Yeah. Please keep making princess movies. I suspect his reaction was, I did a princess movie. Why would I do another one? At least it's not right away. That. But yeah. Here's, here's the thing. They're like, we're not giving this a general release. And he's like, I don't want a general release. I want a special limited run roadshow release. <laughs> roadshow is, a t for anyone who doesn't know, is a type of theatrical distribution that doesn't exist anymore. And it's pretty much what it sounds like. The movie is a traveling show. Uh -huh. And this was done for like special movies and extra long movies. There, It was done for movies to make them into a big event. Ah, One of my favorite movies, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, got a, uh, a roadshow release in the 1950s and was released in like a four or five hour long version or something that oh no my longer goodness. exists. <laughs> <laughs> that movie's already long. Yeah. And it's great, but I can't imagine more. Well, that was what roadshows were for. Roadshows were like, make a day of it. <laughs> I guess but so. The, but these are also even more expensive, even less profitable ways to release movies. Right. So RKO's response to this was, you know what? You do it yourself. <laughs> it relaxed its exclusive distribution contract with Disney, and Disney pretty much releases it himself. Yeah. It has 13 roadshow engagements, and this is the first version of the movie. Because there are many, many versions of this movie. But this <laughs> one was done in one roadshow in 1940, which is why we call this a 1940 movie. The other 12 were held throughout 1941, and they would go to a theater. Uh -huh. It actually opened at the Broadway Theater in New York City. Mm -hmm. They would go to a theater. They would take multiple days to set up Fantasound, <laughs> and they would play the movie for as long as people kept showing up to it. <laughs> And then it wouldn't move on till it was done. Like people weren't coming anymore. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. Like a like a play. Yeah. Interesting. And it does, considering all of this, <laughs> it does pretty well in America. It's very expensive for Disney to pay, you know, for these theaters. Well, yeah. And then they're planning to take the roadshow to Europe, but uh, a little thing happens called World War II. Yeah, that they probably wouldn't work. <laughs> and the European releases were normally the source of 45% of the studio's income. Ooh. Foreign market's a big deal. Now they don't have that. Bad timing. Also because of the war effort, they dismantle all but one of the Fantasound machines. Oh. To donate as scrap to the war effort. Makes sense. They kept one. 
<laughs> so, in April 1941, RKO gets the film's distribution rights back. They continue to show it. This is the second version of it. They show it still in a roadshow format, but with mono audio. Yeah. Rather than the surround sound, fantasound, we're not messing with that. Right. Then, in 1942... They're like, we're going to do a general theatrical release. Uh-huh. What we think of as a regular, degular <laughs> theater release. Yep. But we are going to cut it. We still don't like that two-hour runtime. <laughs> Disney fought this for a long time, but he really needs money. Yep. And RKO really needs money. And there's a war on. So he finally says, okay, but he will not cut it himself. He says, you can get anybody you want to edit it. I can't do it. (laughs) So one of the directors, Ben Sharpstein, and one of the musical directors, Ed Plum, cut it down to an hour of 20 minutes by removing Deems Taylor's commentary Uh and the Toccata and Fugue. Oh, that would do it, I guess. Um, So they re-release it in 1942 with the mono soundtrack, with the cut down to an hour and 20 minutes, and at regular ticket prices. Uh Uh-huh. It is on the lower half of a double bill with a movie called Valley of the Sun that does not exist. (laughs) They then re-release it in 1946 with all of the animated sequences and all of the scenes with Taylor Stokowski and the orchestra back, but with those live action scenes shortened. Uh It's now an hour and 55 minutes long. So not too much shorter. In 1955... The film is deteriorating. The sound <laughs> film yeah. is deteriorating. They had one Fantasound copy in good condition. Well, they haven't been using it. <laughs> also, RKO has now given the distribution rights to Buena Vista. Uh-huh. Buena Vista also has its own video format that's called Cinemascope, which is an ultra, ultra, ultra widescreen format that we don't even use anymore. <laughs> they shifted Fantasia from its standard aspect ratio to Cinemascope ratio, uses this one existing Fantasound system, and re-releases it in 1963. This running time is 56 seconds longer than the previous issue. It's not clear why. (laughs) Yeah. It gets yet another re-release in 1969. This is when it becomes popular with the college kids and the (laughs) druggies, and it's, it's... they actually start marketing it as a psychedelic experience. Like, hey, you know, gotta make money off it somehow, right? Well, appropriately enough, this is when it finally makes money. Yay. After all of this theatrical releases in 1969, it turns a profit. It gets released again in 1977 with simulated stereo sound. They replace the RKO logo with the Buena Vista logo. Mm-hmm. This version is two and a half minutes shorter than the previous version, and nobody knows why there's no records of what they cut. <laughs> and this version of the movie, like every version of the movie we've talked about so far, no longer exists. Right. In 1982, they're like, we're working off of this one version of the soundtrack that can only be played on this one archaic system. <laughs> so they decide to replace the Stokowski soundtrack. I thought that was 
That was that late? I thought it was earlier. It's 82. Okay, my bad. They re-record the soundtrack in Dolby Stereo, because we now have a standardized system for stereo music. Right. With a director named Erwin Castall. He directed a 120-piece orchestra and 50-voice choir, <laughs> and used a different orchestration of A Night on Bald Mountain. That's just weird. It's so weird. For all the other songs, they use Stokowski's own arrangements. For this one, they actually use a different arrangement, <laughs> which caused a lag in that part of the film, right? Because yeah, yeah. the music is not exactly the same. Yeah, because they lined up the animation with Stokowski's versions of the music. I mean, it's it's weird. It's like, this is a piece of film history, and this one composer doesn't li- didn't like his version, so okay, <laughs> Stokowski's recording of that no longer exists. So, in 1982, they released this version of the movie with the new soundtrack... And also, they replace all of Deems Taylor's scenes with brief voiceover-only narration from Hugh Douglas because they felt like the original narration was too long and the modern audience knew more about music and didn't need all that. Which <laughs> is kind of true, but also a weird choice. It is. In 1985, they release it again, but this time theaters have digital speakers so they can use the actual digital recording of the Coastal soundtrack. So it sounds the same unless you're a big nerd, but this does mean Fantasia was the first theatrical feature film that had digital stereo sound. They also replaced the narration with narration by actor Tim Matheson. (laughs) Apparently the narration has been replaced a lot. Yeah, we're not even done. I know. (laughs) Then, the 50th anniversary version that was released in 1990. The one I'm familiar with. There was a two-year restoration process. They go, hey, what if we stopped, like, trying to tape over, like, different parts of this movie and just released (laughs) this movie that, again, is, like, an important historical artifact? They searched for six months, found some original negatives, pieced them together. This is the first time since the Roadshow release, that very first release, that a print of the film was made using original negatives Mm. and not weird copies. They restored Deems Taylor's introductions... Uh They restored each of the 535,680 frames in the film by hand using a 1951 version of the movie to guide them on using the correct colors. Wow. They put it back in its original aspect ratio instead of CinemaScope. And they used not literally Fantasound, but they used new specific stereo sound equipment that was trying to, like, get as close to the original as it could. Uh Uh-huh. They restored the Stokowski soundtrack, but made it digital, and they remastered it. A guy named Terry Porter, who had also worked on the 1955 version, he says that they removed 3,000 pops and hisses from the recording. (laughs) They release it in 1990, makes a ton of money, it's a big deal. They also timed the first home video release to this. Yeah, 91. But we're still not done! But this is the version I'm familiar with, and I believe they actually... They didn't restore 100% of Deems Taylor's uh, introduction parts. They actually left out the bits, I believe, where he specifically describes what's going on in each segment. They just had him introducing them, not describing them. Because that's what I'm familiar with. Yes, that's, that's true. I also forgot one important detail of a previous release. The 1969 version, the psychedelic version, uh-huh. is also the one that changes the pastoral symphony to remove the sunflower character. 
uh-huh. who is a black centaur who is drawn very offensively and is a servant to a pale-skinned centaur and is kind of minstreling around. Yeah, I'm glad that they removed those. I've never actually, obviously, because I didn't see the, any of the versions before the 1990, they've never had put those back, so... I've never actually seen the segments. That's right. Not only have they never put those back, they tried to claim that it didn't exist, that there never was, that that character was never in the movie, which you can go on YouTube and you can see the original scenes of that character. (laughs) Um, It actually is, it's kind of interesting to see how they edited it, like, because they had to edit it in a way that still fits the music. Yeah, didn't they do some sort of pan and scan something? They do some pan and scan. They do some reanimating the scenes to scrub her out of it. They do a lot of different stuff. Yeah. It is kind of interesting to see a side-by-side comparison. Um, I don't know if I agree with the decision to remove it. Because it feels like, again, they're literally trying to pretend it never existed. They're trying to pretend Disney was never racist. and like I thought it was that they... There was a lot of complaints. Hey, this is a horrible racial stereotype. And so they removed it because they didn't want it to be offensive more than they were trying to pretend it didn't exist. But I'm sure it's different people say different things. Exactly. We're talking about, you know, 60 years of marketing messaging. Right. Even from that release. Although you can find her on the Disney wiki. Um, oh, I mean, t- to be clear, those scenes are pretty racist. I, I don't think they're good scenes. I wish they had never been in the movie. Right. But, like, they were. It's just, this movie, all of the different versions of this movie are very weird. <laughs> I hope our audience has not been bored by me talking about all of them. But it is fascinating, like, that they've tried to change this movie so much. But not in the way they had originally intended to change this movie. No, so. <laughs> not in adding and removing segments. The, all of these first editions are can we make this profitable? And then the later editions are like, oh, let's show off all our cool new technology. And then the 1990 version is like, all right, let's actually try to get as close to the original movie as we can. (laughs) But there is still a couple more significant changes because there are two home video releases. There's the 1991 home video release based on the 1990 theatrical version but of course it doesn't have the the sound that's as cool because it doesn't have the special sound machine well of course i really wish i could have been alive to see either the 1990 version or even better the original version (laughs) just to see how different the sound would be hear the special sound because i am a sound nerd that's a good thing for all of you listening because you know it means that i edit the podcast obsessively (laughs) but uh The more important release uh, is the one that came out in 2000 with the release of Fantasia 2000 because that's when they put back, you're right, all of the original video of Deems Taylor. Yeah. They restored those extra scenes that were not in the 1990 release and they overdub all of his narration with Corey Burton because they had lost the audio tracks to Taylor's restored scenes. From 10 years ago, I guess. Yeah. Seems like somebody should have put that in a clearly labeled box. (laughs) Well, they might not have had those bits when they were restoring everything, but I don't know. I I gotta say, there's nothing necessarily wrong with Corey Burton's voice. It's just not the one I remember from 
when I watched Fantasia when I was younger. And so I miss Deems Taylor's voice and the way it sounds. When I hear Corey Burton's voice, I'm like, it's just not the same. (laughs) I have zero beef with Corey Burton. He's done a ton of Disney voices. He is, among other things, Ludwig von Drake in both the original DuckTales and the 2017 reboot. He's Gruffy Gummy in Adventures of the Gummy Bears, a show (laughs) you and I both have a lot of fondness for. Yes. He's done a lot of performances I really like. He is bad in this, I think. (laughs) The narration is the worst part of this movie. I think we are both agreed, at least in the current version. Now, we watch it on Disney+. Plus. I'm pretty sure that the Disney Plus release is the same as this 2000 release it definitely has the Corey Burton narration. I think so. I Obviously, I didn't watch both of them back to back to compare, though I was kind of tempted <laughs> just to see if there was anything different. I couldn't find anything definitive like, what's the version on Disney Plus? Has it been changed at all? Because some of yeah. the Disney Plus releases change things. I don't think this one has. I think basically the... 2000 version is now the definitive version. I think so, too. Uh, The reception of the movie. Critics loved it when it first came out. The premiere was a huge deal. Audiences did not like it as much. Yeah. Audiences complained that it didn't feel like it was a kid's movie. Um, understandable. And didn't like the higher ticket prices. Mm -hmm. Again. Yeah. Coming out of a depression, going into a war. Uh-huh. That really was like one of the biggest complaints. Critics really like it. And now it's pretty much universally recognized as a masterpiece. And uh, once again, Walt wins, or technically Fantasia wins, two Academy Honorary Awards. <laughs> They're like, we are not giving you an actual Academy Award. But yeah, okay. Uh, they got one. For Disney, William Garrity, John Hawkins, and the RCA Manufacturing Company for inventing Fantasound. Yeah. And another one goes to Stokowski and his associates for their unique achievement in the creation of a new form of visualized music in Walt Disney's production Fantasia, thereby widening the scope of the motion picture as entertainment and as an art form. There you go. And also just to talk about the title, because we brought that up earlier, it was called the concert feature or the musical feature for most of the time when it was being produced. Yep. But RKO wanted a different title. I can understand that. They initially suggested film harmonic concert. (laughs) Pretty good. Oh, it's such a knee slapper. Then they held a contest at the studio for a title that produced 1,800 suggestions. Wow, I'm glad I wouldn't didn't have to go through all of those. Including Bach to Stravinsky and Bach. Ugh. That sucks. So many bad <laughs> puns. And possibly the worst title anyone has ever suggested <laughs> for anything... Hybrowski by Stakowski. <laughs> Hybrowski. Oh my goodness. <sighs> Disney rejected every single one of those. <laughs> and hopefully had the people suggesting it put to death. Um, and instead they went with Fantasia, which was a very, very early working title. And is the best title. It I, really is. Th- it's perfect. <laughs> and whew, with that, an hour into recording, who knows what that'll get edited down to. <laughs> I think we have covered the essential context for this movie. Yeah. I think. I've probably let out a lot of stuff. Please don't tweet at me. Oh, yeah. Just go read online. You can find out more information. This, I mean, this this is a one of the most fascinating movies and one of the most fascinating movie releases <laughs> ever. 
there's your cliff's notes yeah so with that do you want to go through the plot of the movie (laughs) well it's not exactly the plot but we'll you know go through each segment and talk about what we liked and didn't like sounds good obviously it starts with a bit of narration by deems taylor actually Corey burton oh hold on hold on i'm uh, i'm actually getting something over the wire here can we get a mom status um not yet (laughs) (laughs) there are no moms at the beginning of this movie (laughs) i was actually thinking about it Pretty sure the only mom comes in during the pastoral symphony. Who? The Pegasus mom. I don't even think I know who you're talking about, but I believe you. You've <laughs> seen this movie a thousand times. I'll bring it up when we get to the pastoral symphony, but I'm pretty sure that's the only mom in the whole thing. I'm assuming Deems Taylor had a mom. <laughs> I assume she's dead by now, but I have no idea yeah, whether she she's... was alive when Fantasia was made. <laughs> think i think it's safe to say she's probably dead in 2020 exactly (laughs) she's either dead or she's more powerful than we can imagine (laughs) this movie actually starts though a little before the cory burton introduction and i'd forgotten the the nature of the live action segments in this Uh it starts with these shadows of the orchestra members yeah coming in like that almost look animated like you could almost believe it's really animated and then the live action people walk in yep they pick up their instruments and start tuning them and like as each instrument gets a little bit of play they they put a different colored light on it yeah it's really evocative Uh it's good stuff and it feels it makes you feel more like you're going to a concert to have these bits in there i feel like i really like it it's great it's it's so essential like you gotta get into the mood Uh for this movie and you know even though disney was a lunatic who really overestimated how much people wanted any of this (laughs) i think he still understands you know this movie is a tone poem literally you have to get people into it and then there's the introduction i really like this opening introduction this is the only one and again you know who knows how much of that is Corey burton who knows how much of that is they spend a lot of time explaining things I mean, like we were talking about, this is a style of narration that comes from radio. Right. It doesn't exist anymore. But he talks about how it's a new form of entertainment. And he talks about how there are three different types of segments you're about to see. Yeah, I like that part of the introduction, too. The three types of music are the kind that tells a definite story. The kind that, while it has no specific plot, does paint a series of more or less definite pictures. Then there's a third kind... Music that exists simply for its own sake. Yeah. It's funny that that's the the third one he lists as the first one we start with. You know, normally you'd feel like you give them in the order that you're going to see them in. But nope. Right. And he says a music of this third kind, what we call absolute music. <laughs> and you're already like, absolute music. It doesn't even have a descriptive title. Takata and Fugue in D minor. It just describes what the music is. However, it is one of my favorite classical pieces. <laughs> right. And I got my love of it from Fantasia because that's where I heard it first, probably. I mean, listen, every single song on the soundtrack slaps. Yeah. They're all club bangers, top to bottom. <laughs> I mean, they go hard, let's just say it. <laughs> no, but yeah, jokes aside, I think, you know... You and I come from, in addition to a Disney family, 
and probably not coincidentally, a very musical family. Right. Your dad is a conductor. Yep. Well, my parents met in band, so music has always been a part of our lives. My dad taught band, um, has conducted bands and choirs and orchestras and all kinds of things, um, still works with music stuff. So yeah, music is always something that's been in my life. So that it makes sense that this is one of my favorite movies because I like the music. It's especially prevalent on your side of the family, but really the entire extended family, almost everybody either plays an instrument or sings or both. Right. I myself played the French horn. Yep. And I played the saxophone. So I'm not going to say like, especially I am not a classical music expert or anything, but you know, we see an orchestra and we're like, ah, oh, home. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Toccata and Fugue in D minor. We're going to go through these segments pretty quickly because you don't want to just hear us try to describe it. I actually <laughs> did. Normally, I take very complete notes on the scenes of the movie. Yeah. So we can go through them in this synopsis. I was trying to do that for <laughs> Takata and Fugue and I gave up. Here's what I have. Conductor silhouette. Flashes of color. Lights on three French horns, abstract animations of bows and strings, Aurora Borealis-esque, kinda like fireworks, flowing reddish-purple waves, or maybe weird clouds, sparkles, colors breaking through dark clouds, flashes of light. <laughs> ah, but you didn't get to the part that's like a walking block that walks away from you. <laughs> I like the walking block. I'm not sure what it's supposed to be, but it's cool. I also quite like the bits that are like the shadows of the strings when the strings are kind of flying over a landscape. There's quotes around all these words. <laughs> but the way the music has, there's the sound of the strings that are flying in the air and the sound of the strings in the shadows too. I really like that part. I also like the part where it looks like there's a path flowing through the sky, growing, and to be honest, Fantasia is one of the few things that actually inspired me to draw also, and I don't draw much, but I used to draw some, and a lot of times what I used to draw were bits from Fantasia, and I would draw those paths in the sky, and I would draw bits from some of the, from like the Nutcracker Suite. I actually like to try to draw some of the things. And I felt like I could because some of the drawings are very simplistic. <laughs> that's that's incredible. I didn't know that. I, I think it speaks to how much this movie is just pure creativity. Right. We're making jokes about, you know, Disney being a lunatic. And he kind of was. You know, this is, this is the movie that has the least commercial instinct, for sure. <laughs> but that... That is beautiful. Like, that's that's what yep. we love about it, you know? Speaking, though, of weird ideas, Disney wanted the Takata and Fugue section to be a three-dimensional film. <laughs> he, he wanted to give stereoscopic frames to the audience and try to make, you know, the first 3D movie. <laughs> uh, but this idea was abandoned for being too complicated, if you can believe it. Right. It's also just bold to start the movie yeah, with this. To like, start it with the potentially least interesting segment. Right. Um, but it's also very smart because it feels like it eases you into the animation. It starts you off, you're looking at the orchestra and then it kind of eases you into the animation, and then it goes on to the ones that tell more of a story. It's just 
It works. It's this perfect statement of purpose of like, this is the purest form of what we're doing here. What right. we're doing is try to visualize how music makes you feel. Right. Which is impossible. And we're going to try, though. So we, I think we're agreed. Great, bizarre, but wonderful, great, beautiful yep. opening segment. I love the ending which I feel like is, again, almost the purest form of this, we go back to the conductor. Every segment ends, except, I believe, the last one, uh-huh. with the conductor in silhouette. He's only ever in silhouette. By the way, like, just centering the conductor as such an important character, brilliant. Yeah. That he never speaks, but he is... Stakowski is such a presence I believe in this he does movie. speak to Mickey. That's true. Sorry, he does speak to Mickey. Yeah, but mostly like, he doesn't speak. Still, he's not doing the introductions. I think that's important. Yeah. It makes him this like mythic figure, like <laughs> Mickey Mouse, right? Like yeah. this totemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so we cut back to the conductor at the end of this one, again in silhouette, but he's conducting the animation. Yeah. All the other ones, it's just back to him conducting the orchestra. This one, it's his silhouette over the animation, and it really does look like he's conducting the animation now, not the music. Yeah. And then the animation fades out. Again, just just this perfect statement of purpose. Yeah, that was that was a very well done. The second segment, the Nutcracker Suite. And as Deems Taylor says, there's no Nutcracker in this. They decided to take the Nutcracker Suite music and tell a completely different story from what you might expect. <laughs> I kind of love that movie. Again, trying to think of this from like a 1940s audience member's perspective. You think you are seeing the follow-up to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Pinocchio. Yeah. And you've come in and it started with live action. And then there was a segment that is plotless and jokeless. And your kids are probably shifting in their seats a little bit. Yeah. With this overpriced ticket. And then he's like, the Nutcracker Suite. And you're like, okay, I get what this is going to be. There's no Nutcracker in it. It's just like, <laughs> it's like almost hostile to what you would traditionally expect to see. Which again, I am not complaining about. Yeah. Another thing he says in this narration is he talks about how wrong an artist can be about his own work. Yeah. He's talking about how Tchaikovsky like didn't think much of the Nutcracker Suite, but now it's one of his most famous pieces of music. Yeah. Kind of feels like it could be about Walt. A little bit. A little bit. I do like how in the Nutcracker Suite, they do... It doesn't, like, cut between different of the segments of the songs. Because, of course, each part of the Nutcracker Suite has its own different name. Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, the Chinese dance, the Arabian dance, so on and so forth. Right. They do different things in the animation for each segment. But they all flow and blend into each other very neatly. Um, yes. And I always like that. The Nutcracker Suite is another one of the segments that I quite like. I like all the little flower fairies and everything <laughs> flying around. Right. There's there's flower fairies. There's kind of the dew fairies and then the mushrooms and flowers dancing in the water. The fish underwater. The mushrooms, I think, are the most remembered part of this. It's true. For, for a few different reasons. One is that that is during the Chinese dance, and some people see them as kind of an offensive Chinese stereotype, at least somewhat. Yeah. I truly, this is going to sound like I'm trying to, like, exonerate myself of some white guilt. Um, I truly, watching it this time, did not realize that's what that was supposed to be until I read it afterwards, because <laughs> I didn't remember that that section was called the Chinese dance. Right. Because they have little 
like slanted slits for eyes. And they have little cues in the back. But I just thought, oh, because that's what mushrooms have underneath them. Like they're just doing mushroom eyes. Yeah. Which, which is kind of the thing. And, and, you know, I don't want to bring anyone down by talking about this too much. But this and the other problematic portrayal in the the pastoral symphony, you know, the Sunflower character who got cut and the couple of black centaurs who are still in it. This movie is not trying to be offensive. Right. It's really not trying to say anything about race at all. Uh-huh. But at this time, the visual depictions of minority characters are all creepy stereotypes. <laughs> I think the reason I didn't recognize Hop Low and the other dancing mushrooms as Chinese stereotypes is because they don't look anything like Chinese people. Right. But they look like how people in the 1940s drew Chinese people because Chinese people were not drawn anything like what they looked like, anything like human beings. Yeah. Um, And that is an outdated cultural depiction. It is. For sure. But it's one that we don't notice as much anymore. But here's the thing. Hoplo is very cute and I love it. I love to see him. (laughs) He's a cute little mushroom guy. In these first two segments, uh, the, the Chinese dance is kind of the most, the closest thing to a traditional Disney short, because poor Hoplo is just trying to keep up yep. with his bigger brothers. Yep. In the segment with the underwater fish, the little fish swimming around with the fan dancing tails, basically their tails are like they're doing a fan dance. Yep. Um, those are the other little things that I would draw, little fish. This is all nice. This is sweet. Hoplo's the breakout character. <laughs> and, you know, RKO signed him to a seven picture deal. <laughs> You noted that you like the seed pod ladies. Yes, when it's the section with the autumn fairies who are changing all the leaf colors to brown and gold and red or whatever. And then they're opening up the seed pods and the little uh, seed pods come out and they look like big fat ladies fluffing down to the ground. I don't know. They're very funny to me. Yeah, it's a nice segment. After this is, of course... The centerpiece. Yep. The Sorcerer's Apprentice. The third segment. Sorcerer's Apprentice. The most popular one. I feel like I actually saw the Sorcerer's Apprentice segment before I saw the rest of Fantasia. I'm pretty sure it was just on some other Disney something. Like, they actually just had that piece. They definitely separate this out and show it as its own thing. Yep. A lot. I definitely have seen a lot that way as well. House of Mouse. Uh-huh. Which I feel like is a thing that I talk about several times on this show. Because it, it was kind of the like prepackaged Disney short TV show I grew up with. <laughs> yeah. Every generation has their prepackaged Disney short TV show. Right. Except right. for the current one, which just has Disney Plus. Not quite the same thing. Shorts on demand. I truly wish. You know what? Let's use our platform now and speak out about this. Hey, Disney. Just release all the shorts on Disney+. All the shorts, please. We don't need this rotating cast of like, here's six or seven of the current shorts we're putting on here and we're swapping them in and out. Just put every single Donald Duck short on Disney+, Plus, please. I would like to see them. Yep. And Chippendale. And Goofy and Mickey. Especially Donald Duck and Chippendale. Right. Those ones, they're great together. Just all of it. Put it all on there. You, You could... At any time. <laughs> and and we will watch that. My point is, I feel like there are definitely multiple House of Mouse episodes that just have the Sorcerer's Apprentice as a standalone <laughs> segment. Very <laughs> That true. was the point of all of that. Because, you know, this episode needs to be longer. <laughs> and do you know the Sorcerer's name? Uh, I saw it in my research. I can't remember. It start, it's like two words. Uh-huh. One starts with a Y, one starts with an S. Yep. His name is Yen Sid. 
because it's Disney spelled backwards. Ah, good stuff. Yep. Apparently the way Yen Sid, the sorcerer, does that eyebrow raise thing when he's not happy with Mickey, apparently that was a thing Disney did. (laughs) That's good stuff. Yeah, I mean, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, it is great. I don't know if it's my favorite segment of Fantasia. It's either that or the next one. But I think it's clear why it's the most iconic. For one thing, it includes Mickey and is still sort of structured like a Mickey short. Yeah, has a definite story. Very mundane task goes horribly wrong. (laughs) Which are like a lot of the classic Disney character shorts. Yeah. Um, But I mean, it is gorgeous. It shows that this was the silly symphony that was 10 times more expensive. (laughs) Yeah. And they did a very cool thing at the end of it with Mickey shaking the hand of Leopold Stokowski. Yes. In silhouette. And it just always looks real. Yeah. Do Do we want to talk about the plot of this i mean most people probably know yeah i i would assume people probably know but the basic plot is mickey is the sorcerer's apprentice the sorcerer takes off his magic hat and goes up to rest well he makes a butterfly from a skull he does make a butterfly from a skull and then he's like whew that's enough sorcering for today So he's like, I'm going to go take a nap. Mickey is supposed to be filling the cistern with water from the fountain that's outside. And he decides he's going to put on the magic hat and try to make his life easier by enchanting the broom to do his work for him. And he's animated with the dopey sleeves, the sleeves that like, you know, go way over his hands and everything. Yeah. Like, visually emphasizing, because there's, of course, no talking. Right. That he is way in over his head. <laughs> yes. Also, this is the first time Mickey had actual pupils in his eyes. Yes, it is. I read this as well. Yeah. Because they wanted him to be able to express more. Yep. Because, again, you have to carry the story With no words. Exactly. So he had to be able to have more emotions. And it really shows, and it's amazing. Yep. The broom keeps delivering water and don't stop until he kills it with an axe, which is weirdly almost gruesome. Yeah, it's another murder kind of in silhouette. Yeah. Like, you don't get to see too graphic. Ah! But then, of course, all the splinters turn into brooms with buckets of their own, And then it's just chaos. So much water. Mickey also has a dream sequence. When it's just the one broom doing the work, he falls asleep himself and has a dream where he is the all-powerful sorcerer who's controlling stars and water and all kinds of things. Um, It's so cool. Yeah. And then, of course, he wakes up because the room is flooded. (laughs) You know, he's really trying. He's like flipping through the magic book that he's also swimming on, like all this stuff. Yeah. He's trying to fix it. He does not save the day. He does not. The sorcerer, Yen Sid, has to wake up and come back and bail him out, literally, by making all the water go away. Yep. Apparently, he can also work magic without his magic hat. It's true. He's that good. Because he's an actual sorcerer. Right. But he can't make a butterfly come from a skull without his magic hat. (laughs) I'm not really sure I understand the purpose of the butterfly. 
that's okay. Looks looks cool. I mean, true, it's Fantasia, true. right? I know. I'm I'm joking. Like, if you were going to visit a sorcerer, like, I need a spell. I need butterfly spell. I agree. His workshop has no spells, no potions that you can buy. It's not really clear what he's doing. But, you know, again, don't worry about it. It's just the music. (laughs) Disney's like, be thankful you have a plot at all, worms. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, at the end, Mickey picks up the buckets to go back to work. And uh, the sorcerer gives him a little spank on the bottom with a broom. (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough. Another narration introducing the Rite of Spring that is interrupted at first by uh, chimes getting, like, knocked over a little bit. (laughs) This is one of the things that got cut and added back in and cut and added back in. It's true. I'm not really sure why they decided to have that as part of the story. I think it's a little comedic. Yeah. In a not particularly comedic movie from a guy mostly known for comedy. Yeah. I mean, it is funny. I think also it kind of emphasizes like this, like he was obsessed with making it feel like it was a real concert, right? Yeah. So like tiny little impromptu things might happen. Yep. Everything might not go off perfectly without a hitch. (laughs) And then the Rite of Spring might be my favorite. (laughs) It's never been one of my favorites. So, you know, it's fun to disagree. It is apparently not well liked. Maybe I'm just, you know, I'm the contrarian film critic. <laughs> it always felt to me like Rite of Spring lasted forever. It is. I mean, I think it's the longest segment. I'm not sure because I didn't look up the times of each segment either. But that one always felt like it was so long. And parts of it to me were extra boring. It was never one of my favorites. And I, I will admit to occasionally skipping it when I would watch Fantasia. <laughs> so the narrator uh talks about how this song was written to be about primal forces and this was actually one of the first ideas they had in those like story sessions was wanting to do something kind of about primal forces in the beginning of the world Uh they wanted to show from you know basically the the formation of earth as they show in the thing Uh to The Age of Mammals, The First Humans, The Discovery of Fire, and Man's Triumph. (laughs) Which might have made it less boring for you if they had to, you know, put more in there. But Disney stepped in and uh, he didn't want to get into any controversy with creationists. He didn't want to connect evolution to the rise of humans. So they cut it off before that. At the end of the dinosaurs. Which makes it kind of like brutal it does kind of have a downer ending even still i i almost feel like the fact that the narrator describes this as the first billion years of the planet's existence would make creationists mad today (laughs) he also in the narration talks about uh, many of the dinosaurs being friendly but some of them being and i quote bullies and gangsters (laughs) yeah which led to me absolutely ruining our shared watch of Fantasia as I spent, I think, the entire rest of the runtime of the movie trying to pitch dinosaur gangsters. It's true. It's true. Neither Disney nor Pixar could make a good dinosaur movie, but you know what they were both missing? Gangsters. To be honest, the way the narrator describes this segment, you almost feel like you're going to see anthropomorphized dinosaurs but they're not they're actually as realistic as they could make them at the time they're not cartoony looking at all if you know what i mean yeah no i definitely know what you mean that's i think 
that's kind of one of the things I really like about this section. It is so... It's so, like, cool and brutal and primal. Like, the opening shots are space, which I already love. Yeah. Then we have volcanoes exploding. I do like the volcano segment. That part's pretty cool. We go to microscopic life, which I wrote down. The Disney animators at this time can even give microscopic life a clear personality. (laughs) Yeah. We get uh, the smoke of time. Yeah. This smoke rolls in to show that time is passing, and you dubbed it the smoke of time. Yes. Then we have some pterodactyl fighting over squid which rules brontosaurus is fighting over leaves velociraptors stegosauruses obviously none of this is accurate to what we know about any dinosaurs today but it's 1940 we give them a break right there's these weird looking platypus dinosaurs i don't know enough about dinosaurs to identify there's the blobfishosaurus <laughs> i don't know what that one's called either but it's this weird short stubby looking thing that's just trying to grab a rock <laughs> and then the t-rex Yes. The vicious, completely inaccurate, long-armed T-Rex. <laughs> bully. The bully, the gangster. And there is a full-on dinosaur fight between a T-Rex and a Stegosaurus. Yeah. There's like a boxing match, and it's brutal and violent, and the Stegosaurus dies. Like, Yep, and the Tyrannosaurus eats it. Yeah. Unfortunately, by the end of the segment... They're all dead anyway. Not of meteor, again. We're working with what we know at the time. They right. die of hunger, thirst, and quicksand? Dust bowl. They die of dust bowl. <laughs> they die of dust bowl, and like you see them dying, and you're like, oh, I get what's happening here. And then it's like, field of dinosaur skeletons, in case you didn't get it, children. Right. And then there's a huge earthquake, the shifting of tectonic plates. Yep. And I can, I can hear the music for that bit as you're talking about it. My argument for this segment is that you can take any still of it uh-huh. and it would be a great prog metal album cover. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I wish I had better words to describe it. Fantasia, you know, it's just like, how does it make you feel? And it just is cool. Yeah. That's the only word I have. Like, it is awesome. Yeah. It's like a hyper violent Disney dinosaur action movie. <laughs> Set in hell. (laughs) Now it's time for the intermission. Not our intermission, but Fantasia's intermission. We could put in an intermission. (laughs) Welcome back, everybody. Did you enjoy your bathroom break? (laughs) Did you buy some concessions? (laughs) When the orchestra comes back after the intermission... They have a brief little jam session of some jazz music. I really like that. And that is, again, I don't know whose idea that was. Yeah. But that is like the Stokowski thing. Yeah. Right? Where it's like jazz is no worse than classical music. Right. We're just going to throw in a little jazz here while we're getting tuned up. It's very nice. Yep. Uh, And then we have the soundtrack. Right. The character of the soundtrack. It's a cute little up and down line that... When they do instrument sounds, it makes interesting shapes. It's very hard to describe in words because it's such a visual gag. Right. I mean, this whole movie is hard to describe in words. Hey, you want a description of Fantasia? You should watch the movie Fantasia. It's on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> I think we're both going to agree it's quite good at the end. Yes. The soundtrack is adorable and nice. And it's like, 
As much as people at the time thought this movie wasn't for kids, it's totally like a great little introduction to music Mm -hmm. and like how to think about music. Next up is the Pastoral Symphony by Ludwig von Beethoven. Yep. And I'm sorry, this is my least favorite segment. (laughs) This is another segment I also like, but... I will say also, I pretty much like the whole movie. Yeah. There's a lot of cutesy stuff in this one. Also, I just realized, I say this is my least favorite segment. Do we count Night on Bald Mountain and Ave Maria as one or two? Oh, I don't know. Probably as two, because I feel differently about (laughs) both, I guess. So the Pastoral Symphony, it's Mount Olympus, it's mythical creatures and gods and goddesses. But centaurs and centaurettes. Yeah, yeah. Centaurettes, that's a word that you're just like, oh. (laughs) I don't know. Adding et on the end of everything is just not something we do these days. Tolkien's like, where is he? (laughs) Let me at it, centaurettes. (laughs) They look like My Little Ponies. They really do. The Pegasuses are really boring. The stuff with the centaurs and centaurettes goes on for four hours. (laughs) The Pegasus, there's a mom because there's a nest, right? And you've got the little baby one who's learning how to fly. And the white Pegasus, the grown-up white Pegasus, is the mom. And the grown-up black Pegasus is the dad. Right. And then there's all the little colorful ones. For some reason, apparently, when Pegasus grow up, they only come in black and white. And when they're children, you can have any color of the rainbow. Um, not sure why, but apparently that's a thing. <laughs> Fair enough. Pegasus mom status. Alive. Boring. <laughs> uh, there's a little boy fawn. All of this is leading up to there's these cupids. They dress the centaurettes and put n- makeup on them. And then we have the centaur dating game. Yeah. AKA color recognition. <laughs> <laughs> Match your closest color. Mostly. There's the- there's a there's a couple that are not quite matching. There's these two lonely blue centaurs. The cupids have to hook them up special, and then they draw a curtain over them. Apparently that is to imply um, <laughs> things happening. Let's keep it family friendly. <laughs> um, by having a festival for Bacchus, the god of wine, next. Absolutely right! <laughs> Nothing's more family friendly! <laughs> Then wine night, baby! (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so there's Bacchus. He is very fat. He comes in on a tiny donkey. The tiny donkey's name, not said in the the film at all, (laughs) is Jackus. Of course. Spelled exactly like Bacchus, but with a J. (laughs) They do love their pun names. I gotta oh, say. Don't Bacchus is a, a fun guy. Obviously, we're doing a dis- very Disney-fied version of mythology, so he just seems like somebody you'd want to go to a party to, except he does kind of chase the girls, and that's not okay, Bacchus. Right, right. But they are interrupted by a big cloud. There's and gonna Zeus. be a storm. Zeus. And a centaurette smacks herself to try and get herself to go over a fence. <laughs> what's, what's the word for that? Switch? Yeah, she's like switching herself like you might switch your horse to be like, go, go. Right. But she does it to herself and that's pretty funny. There's a lot more funny little jokes like that in this segment, I gotta say. Oh, definitely. definitely. This one is the very cartoony. Normally, if you say the word centaur or fawns or all these things or pegasus, 
um, unicorns, you think of much more graceful, beautiful things. And these are all mostly very cutesy little, uh, like you said, the centaurs look like My Little Pony style. And I totally agree with that. And that may be why I always kind of liked it, because I was a big fan of My Little Pony when it originally started. So Fair. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Maybe why this one always kind of appealed to me. Um, But yeah. Storm, Vulcan is forging lightning bolts for Zeus, who is trying to hit people with them. Rude. Very rude. And Zeus, that monster. (laughs) He destroys the wine. (laughs) It flows out everywhere. Giant wine flood. Much more wine than could possibly have been in that barrel. (laughs) But that's okay. It's very abstract. (laughs) And then Zeus goes to sleep, and Iris the rainbow goddess comes out. With a rainbow where all the colors are upside down. It's true. It was totally me pointing it out, too. It starts with purple and goes to red. And it's like, why? Why is it upside down? Because all the colors are in the correct order, except for being upside down. Which at least they did that. When people do rainbows and the colors aren't even in order, that's like fingernails on a chalkboard for me. (laughs) It's so bad. It's not that hard to get right. I know. I know, unless you're totally colorblind, I guess. And that's that's that. That's a pastoral symphony. Yep. Everybody goes to sleep at the end. Up next, Dance of the Hours. Dance of the Hours. This one might be my absolute favorite. It's hard to say. It's funny because as I'm watching it, I'm like, I love Takata and Fugue. I really love Nutcracker Sweet. And then when I... I, oh, right. I, I like Sorcerer's Apprentice. It's not my fave because I've seen it a ton. I don't love Light Rite of Spring. Pastoral Symphony, and I'm like, oh, I really like this one too. But then Dance of the Hours comes on and I'm like, nope, this one's the best. <laughs> if they were in a different order, I might actually say a different one's my favorite. <laughs> right. Dance of the Hours, it's excellent. It rules. It's so it's, hilarious. It is the most comedic one. Yeah. It's let's take this beautiful ballet yeah and have the stereotypically least graceful animals perform it that's the bit that is the bit and it's a great bit they have so much fun with the end again all of these movies so far you can tell that these animators come from like cartoons and silly symphonies not to say that they can't do things that are beautiful or brutal right you know i think we've made that clear talking about the golden era so far even talking about this movie but they really shine when it's time to do comedy. Yeah. And so we have Madame Upanova. Yeah. And her ostriches. She's such a well-designed character. Their weird knobbly knees. Their skinny necks with the weird little chokers they've got tied around their necks. And then there's Hyacinth Hippo. Of course. And here's what I really like. It doesn't feel like this is a fat joke. No. If anything, it feels like... You might not expect this creature, this person, to be able to do this ballet, but then they do it. Yeah. It's it's subverting expectations. It's not just like, ah, she's fat, she squashes somebody or anything, which is, which is nice. Yeah. She appears out of a fountain, she does a short amount of dance, and then she also has to go to sleep. Lots of people going <laughs> to sleep after not much effort in this movie. Right, it's right. Kind of a, it's, it's kind of a vibe. It is, it is. It's kind of a mood. Then we bring out Elephantine. Elephantine? I'm not sure how to pronounce this. I'm not sure either. It, I think Elephantine, but 
Not really sure what they're playing off of for that. No, I don't know either. But it's but then it's elephants. These elephants are kind of running amok. Blowing bubbles. They're kind of blowing snot bubbles, which is the <laughs> one part of this. I don't know. I, I just don't. I never thought that, of them as snot bubbles until you said it. They're coming out of the trunks. They're not coming out of the mouth. I mean, would that be drool bubbles? Is that better? No. It, they're elephants. Of course they blow we bubbles just, out their no, their trunks. But you don't just mess, gotta, you just have to not think of their trunk as a nose, <laughs> which it is. But don't think that's of it. Prob- that's probably for the best. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Then the man, the myth, the legend. This is so good. You see these shadows, these caped figures. Because now it's the night, and they are alligator vampires. <laughs> they're not actually vampires, but they're kind of dressed like that. Yeah. Their main dude is Ben Alligator. Of course. <laughs> who has a crush on the hippo and they do a really nice, very silly dance together. Yep. And Ben Alligator, like they use the whole length of him. It's yeah. not just like he's moving his tail and his head. He's almost snake-like. It's so good. Their dance is so good. And then like, I think they basically just all dance together at the big climax, yep. right? Yeah, everybody ends up coming in and dancing together at the end until... Every, the palace collapses. <laughs> but it's just a it's a really fun one and yet still beautiful. Mm-hmm. Reading the behind the scenes, Disney is apparently the one who wanted these animals to perform a legitimate ballet sequence that would have comedic slips. Yeah, which it does. He was like, these should be very competent ballet dancers who just make a few mistakes. And yeah, it's, it's great. Um, they also, this... Like many sequences in this movie, but this one especially, they used real live action people. Yeah. So, you know, they had people perform the actual ballet. So that they could figure out how to animate it, yeah. And Hyacinth Hippo was inspired by three plus-sized dancers. Mm -hmm. Ballet dancers that look like that exist, and they animated her based on them, and it kind of shows, like, she has dignity. Yeah. It's just nice because, like, with these older movies, you expect... A certain amount of problematic content. Outdated cultural depictions. I just saw the hippo and I was like, oh man, is it just going to be lazy fat jokes? And it's not dull. And I, I really appreciate that. Good. And finally, we conclude with the two songs that are sort of combined into one segment. Yep. Night on Bald Mountain and Ave Maria. This is described as a struggle between the sacred and the profane. And it is. So basically, A Night on Bald Mountain There's a big, scary... Essentially, he's supposed to be the devil. Yep, a big demon. Named Chernabog, and it's Halloween night or something like it. It's very Halloween-y, at least. And he summons a bunch of spooky skeletons and specters and spirits. He summons dancing minions who he then casts into the flame of hell. He summons harpies and all this stuff. But once the church bells play... For the morning. They are all forced to withdraw at the sound of them. And then we go into Ave Maria as... What seems to be the the townspeople coming back, carrying candles, coming back to their home. I think it's supposed to be a line of robed monks or something, but we were joking that everybody leaves town for the night of... For Bald Mountain Night, you know, wouldn't you leave town if it was going to be Bald Mountain Night? Yeah! And all the demons were going to come alive and... Spooky, scary skeletons! All the... Yeah. So you would leave town. So we were joking that this was the the townspeople coming back the next day but i think that's not what you're supposed to i think it's supposed to look like monks with torches or something Mm, but anyway it's it's not important so they actually brought in bella lugosi 
very famous horror actor, to provide poses for Chernabog. But they actually didn't like his poses, so instead, the animator for Chernabog asked the director, Wilfred Jackson, to pose with his shirt off. <laughs> and Chernabog is based on that instead, which is interesting. Yeah. So Ave Maria. Ave Maria. It's really boring. It is the most boring segment which it seems strange that the Takata and Fugue segment would be more interesting since there's no plot really at all. There's more movement. But there's more movement and the Ave Maria segment is very slow and smooth. I did find a very interesting thing about how they did it though. They used their multiplane camera but they laid out the cells for the film and everything across a very long display and they moved the camera across the whole thing in like one big shot. I did not know that. The most interesting thing about Ave Maria is how they filmed it but that doesn't actually make it a very interesting piece of film unfortunately. And that is the part where I do frequently fall asleep. It's short. It's harmless. It definitely puts you to sleep. The thing is, audiences were genuinely scared of Night on Bald Mountain. It's true. And having that after it would probably help. The audiences who didn't like it, who didn't feel like it was for kids, like this thing is making kids wet themselves in the theater. Yeah. So Disney felt like they really needed to have an emotional relief. Mm-hmm. They're like, you can't end on Night on Bald Mountain, which is straight up a horror movie yep. in 1940. So that's that's why they need the slow dive Ave Maria. And uh, they were also going to have it end with a Madonna presented on like the final shot of the clouds. Yeah. We're actually going to see her. But then Disney decided he didn't want overtly religious imagery. Yeah. A lot of the imagery in that one, the trees are kind of shaped like cathedral arches and stuff. Yes. The other thing about Ave Maria, you know, maybe it would have been less boring if we'd seen it as they originally wanted to present it with Smell-O-Vision. <laughs> yes, on top of everything else, Disney had the idea of releasing scents throughout the theater during Fantasia, including the smell of incense during Ave Maria. <laughs> I mean, <sighs> good lord, man. <laughs> However, it does make sense that now at some of the Disney parks, they have attractions where you go, you watch something, you have like the full immersive experience where they blow wind on you or splash you in the face oh, yeah. or blow smells into the room or you feel the floor moving. This is totally his vision. It just took a long time to realize it. Yeah. There are, there are theaters in the United States, not so much here in the Midwest, that do what is called, I think they call it 4DX. Yeah, a lot of times it's called 4D. Right, but 4DX is like, it, it's now almost common, and it's, it's that, like they shake your seat around, they blow smells onto you. <laughs> they will release theatrical films in 4DX theaters, and they will make like discrete 4DX for it. It's... It's it's definitely a thing. It is. It's like we were saying, he's ahead of his time. Very. So I think we have covered Fantasia sufficiently. But it is time to talk about sequels, spin-offs, remakes, rides, and reboots. It's true. And this one actually has an obvious sequel, Fantasia 2000. Well, of course. Which we're not going to talk about a ton because we'll get to it later. There are not many Disney movies that have a theatrically released sequel. Correct. This is one of them. Yep. We will talk about it. There have been live action adaptations of several of the segments. Right. The Sorcerer's Apprentice movie, of course. Which is almost a good movie. Yeah. It makes one fatal flaw, which 
perhaps appropriate for Fantasia, the opening scene of that movie tells you the entire mystery of it. Yeah. Which is a big mistake. Take away that one scene. I think that movie's kind of good. Yeah. Admittedly, I love Nicolas Cage. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't a terrible movie, but it just missed the market being really great. The Nutcracker Suite segment is credited as inspiration for the Nutcracker in the Four Realms, which you saw. Yeah, I don't know that I would call it an inspiration specifically. I mean, the Nutcracker in the Four Realms really takes off more from the actual Nutcracker ballet than Fantasia to me. I think so too. But that's, hey, that's what they claim. Whatever. (laughs) And uh, apparently Night on Bald Mountain... At least it was announced in 2015 that they're going to do a live action adaptation of that. Huh. Uh, That has not yet materialized, but okay, guys. Interesting. I wonder what you would even do. It's not like there's a lot of story in that segment, right? It might actually be one of the good live action movies because they could come up with a new story out of whole cloth. Right, make up... Make up any story and put Chernobog in. Right. Like, there you go. That's not on Paul Mountain. And have him be defeated by a bell or something. This movie, of course, has been parodied and referenced several times. It's one of the favorite movies of uh, Matt Groening, creator of The Simpsons. Ah. It's referenced several times in that show. I know you don't care about the show that much, but here's the interesting part. He wanted to make a parody film called Simpstasia. <laughs> Like a whole film? Like a whole feature-length Simpsons version of Fantasia. Wow. Which would have uh, sucked. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of good that it never got made. On the other hand, sort of kind of curious to see what (laughs) on God's green earth that would have been. (laughs) That sounds like the sort of thing you could take, you know... Five minutes of. Obviously, Fantasia is uh, represented in the parks in a whole bunch of ways. Yeah. Although I don't believe it's ever had its own ride specifically. No, not a specific ride. But you could say the Phantasmic Water Show, which almost has the name in it. Fireworks and Water Show has the most from it. Right. That's what I was going to say. Phantasmic Rules. Yeah. It's one of the best things. Yeah. However, we did play at the Fantasia Gardens Miniature Golf Course at Walt Disney World when we were there a few years back. Yep. There's the Fantasia Gardens Miniature Course. There was a big statue of the Sorcerer's Apprentice hat. Like, I don't know. It's all over the parks. Yeah. Weirdly... Also a lot of video games. Which is very strange. It's really strange. This movie again got no plot. Uh... So in 1983, there was a Sorcerer's Apprentice video game for the Atari 2600. (laughs) The player is Mickey Mouse must collect falling stars and comets, which prevent the marching brooms from flooding Yen Sid's cavern. Alrighty, alrighty. Okay, whatever. Sounds Atari-licious. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's very, very basic. Very Atari. In 1991, there was a side-scrolling Fantasia game for the Sega Genesis, (laughs) where Mickey Mouse travels through four elemental worlds based on the movie segments. The Epic Mickey games, a huge misstep, in my opinion, for the (laughs) Mickey Mouse character, have some uh, uh, segments from it. Yen Sid is in both of those games, as is Chernabog. Yeah. But not as a boss battle. Which is another misstep. Right? There have been many, many, many Fantasia appearances in the Kingdom Hearts games. Oh, that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that it's in Kingdom Hearts. It surprises me that they're in so many of the Kingdom Hearts games. Oh. Including a boss fight with Chernobog. Well, there you go. Well, there should be. Yes, come on. And Yen Sid is in some of those games voiced by Corey Burton. (laughs) 
That's funny. But the one I really want to talk about, because I love talking about the uh, spinoffs that should not exist. Oh. Fantasia colon Music Evolved. Okay. Fantasia Music Evolved is a 2014 rhythm game for the Kinect. Uh-huh. Here are some of the songs featured in Fantasia Music Evolved. Okay. Night on Bald Mountain. Uh-huh. Nutcracker Suite. Yeah. A Little Night Music by Mozart. Believable. The Four Seasons Winter by Vivaldi. Uh-huh. Applause by Lady Gaga. What? Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Uh Forget uh... You by CeeLo Green. Feel Good Inc. by Gorillaz. <laughs> <laughs> it's just getting weirder and weirder. Radioactive by Imagine Dragons. Oh my Royals by Lord. Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. <laughs> Rocket Man by Elton John. Super Bass by Nicki Minaj. What? Take Care by Drake featuring Rihanna. <laughs> and Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots Part 1 by the Flaming oh my Lips. Goodness. I swear on my life. And what do you do in this game? Great question! <laughs> I think it's like a I think it's like a dance game. Oh. Right? I think it's like a, a just dance type thing with the connect. Okay. I don't, I don't know. know. This should this shouldn't be this should not exist. Why are there so many Fantasia video games? And why are none of them dinosaur fights? Yeah. It is I'm watching gameplay footage of this now. It is just it's it's a dance game. Okay. With sort of Fantasia-ish visuals, but uh, <laughs> let's say not as good. Yeah. Oh, um, man. So, yeah. If, if you've played Fantasia Music Evolved, right into the mailbag, 123 Fake Street. <laughs> so, having, uh, having talked all about this movie, Mom... We have two questions we like to ask to rate a movie rather than using our numerical rating system. And the first one is, would you recommend it? I would definitely recommend this movie, though I would make sure I explain what it is before I recommend it. So it doesn't come as a surprise like, oh, it's just the regular old Disney movie, Fantasia. No, I wouldn't do that. Right. That would just be cruel. Um, I would explain what it is, um, but I would definitely recommend watching it because... It is such a unique piece of art and and entertainment. And I like it. It's fun. It's just a nice, relaxing movie, really. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, hard recommend. I, I think, obviously. I don't really have anything to add that I haven't already said. Yeah. It is a relaxing movie. It's a visual treat. Every segment is cool in a different way. And it is a fascinating piece of film history and a fascinating piece of film. Yep. And it's really good. Mm -hmm. uh, now, would you show this to a child? And did you show this to your children? I did show it to you guys, but I don't remember when. Obviously, we would have gotten the... We got the two movie set of Fantasia and Fantasia 2000 when that came out on video. I don't know that right. it came out in the year 2000. It might have been like 2000. It Was it? Okay. I couldn't remember if it, you know, sometimes it's the next year. So I would have gotten that probably pretty quickly after it came out. Yeah. But I can't remember if I let you watch it when you were that young because you would have been scared, I think, of Chernabog. Or possibly the dinosaurs. Yeah, that section is almost scary. So it's to me, possible that we watched it and skipped bits. Sure. It's a very 
not to this is gonna sound derogatory but it's a very skippable movie yeah it's very easy to skip segments so yeah i would definitely show it to children when they're old enough not to be scared or show them the parts that aren't scary (laughs) i i would show this to a child i i as people at the time thought like this wasn't a movie for kids this is a great introduction like the narration is so perfect for kids. Right. This is a great introduction to music. You talked about how it was also an introduction to drawing. Like, yeah, as you say, you know, maybe not a four-year-old. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you gotta wait till they can deal with some parts of it. But this is a great movie for kids. Yeah, this is not only a great movie for adults. This is a great piece of art for kids to connect them to creativity and beauty and and hey classical music is not horrible. Yeah, classical music in the history of the world and. I, it's it's great. Yep. It's kind of perfect. <laughs> On that note, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Still not with Bambi. Walt's still working on it. It's, <laughs> he's going to get it finished any day now. <laughs> we'll be back next week with 1941's Dumbo. What are your thoughts on Dumbo? Uh, Maybe it should have been called Jumbo Jr. <laughs> <laughs> great. No further comment needed. <laughs> Nothing else to hey, say. Hey, at least after Fantasia, Dumbo is a short movie. Dumbo is very short. We'll we'll talk about why that is. So until next time, when we come back for the film that is not called Jumbo Jr., I'm me. I'm Mom. And it all started with a mouse. <laughs> not wanting to carry some water. <laughs> oh.